Well, we are back for part two of our series, Looking Back, where we sit down with guests and friends of the podcast and reflect on people who influenced us prior to going into medical school. For part two of this series, we had the chance to sit down with our friend John Casey, previous guest Tarlin Hedayati, and for his debut on the podcast, Mike Gizondi. Recorded at CORD 2019, this is part two of our series, Looking Back. Hope you enjoy. So if you were to look back on your life and pick one person that you can think was truly influential and maybe didn't know it, who would that be? So if I could start, I'm going to choose um, someone related to medicine. And this sort of sounds like a cop-out, but my pre-med advisor mm-hmm. in undergrad deserves the shout-out. And that's not particularly in a, a unique or original role to pick, but it's what she did for me that I think was so important. So, you know, I was kind of an this is going to shock all of your audience, but I'm just sort of a nerd in high school and I did fine, but I, I'm also first gen college. So I went to a, a sort of smaller school and there weren't very many pre-meds. In fact, all of the pre-meds in my class fit in the same car to drive to another school to take our MCAT. Okay. Um, so we're talking about that small. Our pre-med advisor was Marion Ficke is her name. She's advised 30 years of pre-meds from my undergrad, which is Catholic University in DC. And you know, she took a kid who did fine in high school and told him, you need to study hard and you need to shape up and your first year grades aren't that good and you need to stop over committing to all of the things that you want to do in college. And And she really challenged me. And I actually was petrified applying to medical school and probably rightly so looking back on it because she was preparing me for the for the other career. You might not get in. What are you going to do if you don't get in? And I had never been told I couldn't do something before. And, you know, it was it was going to be hit or miss getting into medical school. And I am so grateful that she called me out and really uh, inspired me to work a lot harder. When I got, I got into medical school, obviously, and when I got in there, I did something, I tell you, on the first day, which I now make my interns do during an orientation lecture I still give now, which is I, I sat down in the med school chair and I rubbed the chair. And I was like, I got so lucky. Because this woman helped me get there. And I make all of the interns sit down and rub the chair because a whole lot of other kids would love to be in that chair. And you are so lucky to be in that chair. Wow. So in med school, I worked my ass off and conveniently enjoyed medicine. So it was finally like studying the thing I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So it was sort of easier. But I would never have been there if it wasn't for her. And and not because she strategically advised me and not because I was at a school where they had a pipeline to some other school or any of the things that I think pre-med advisors are really good at, at creating. It was because she told me what it would take to be the kind of doctor that I wanted to be. And I owe everything to her for that uh, set of experiences more so than any. I can't really remember my other college professors' names, but I, I remember every horrible meeting with her in her office where she told me, what life might be like in a year and wanted me to be prepared. She's a wonderful person. That's really good. I'm going to go way back. I'm going to go back to second grade. Oh yeah, that far back. So we uh, immigrated to the U.S. when I was halfway through first grade. And my parents, we moved to Chicago. They enrolled me in the local public school. And that was a struggle. I didn't speak English, but I was really great at math because I think the math was 
a little more advanced when I had done first grade in Iran. And so they were trying to advance me into the second grade class um, at the school, but I couldn't speak English. I couldn't read. I couldn't write. I couldn't communicate with anybody. So I had no friends. And it was horrifying. It was like the worst six months of my, oh my life. Gosh. And so my parents pulled me out of that school and put me in a Catholic school that they had heard about from one of their friends. We're not Catholic. We're not Christian. You know, so... That was different because um, there was a religious component to the education. And I remember talking to my dad, are you sure this is starting at the beginning of the year? Are you sure it's not the middle of the year? I don't want to be the kid that comes in at the middle of the year. And he said, no, it's the start of the year. Everybody's starting that same day. You'll be with everybody else. And my English still wasn't that great. I couldn't communicate. People couldn't pronounce my name. It was just so difficult. And my second grade teacher was Mrs. Egan. And we had a class of about 25 second graders. And they had already connected as first graders. So I was still the new kid coming in, but it was the start of the year. And she was so amazing in terms of helping me become incorporated into the class. She spent extra time with me to teach me the alphabet, the um, you know the English alphabet, to learn how to put the letters together and how to read, how to spell, how to write things. You know, the dates are different in Iran compared to here. So I was so confused as to why, why is it 1982? Like, I don't understand why it's 1982. That's not the year when we left Iran. <laughs> right. <laughs> what are you talking about? It's outstanding. So it was just, you know, all these like weird cultural things that happen that we really, you don't appreciate it. But as a second grader, you know, you don't, you don't understand it. And she was so kind. She was generous with her time, generous with her attention with 25 you know, students in her class, she would pick out specific books for me that were easier for me to read so that I could succeed early on. And then that ended up becoming this great motivation of, oh, I can read this book. Give me another book. Give me another book. And I truly credit her for my love and passion for reading because she knew how to give me those early successes rather than overwhelming me or ignoring me, which I think a lot of students get lost in that, that right. type of a mm -hmm. situation. Here's Melville. Get started. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, was, it was crazy. And, you know, we had reading time where she would read books to the, the class and we would all sit and listen. I couldn't always understand what she was saying. And so she would always sneak me another book that I could read on my own on the side just so that I could at least be doing something be when I couldn't follow the story that she was she was talking about. And then she ended up pairing me up with the person who ended up being my best friend. And I think she recognized, hey, this might be a good fit. Let me put her with this. And she really owned all of my successes. She was so invested that then I wanted to do well to please her and to make her happy and to, you know, make her proud of me. And so that sort of mentoring relationship that I certainly never recognized in the moment, but has become this, you know, great pillar for me of God, if I can make someone else feel that way and feel that good about themselves and succeed and have them take ownership of their success so that they feel they did it and they don't even recognize my role in it until, you know, 30 years later, that would be an amazing achievement. Awesome. Andy, what's yours? So the one that I thought about today was my chemistry 101 teacher in college. So I did not take chemistry in high school. I went to a high school where chemistry was not required to graduate. So as a three-sport athlete, I did not take what was not required to graduate. So I started college, went on my mission, and came back and had this aspiration to go to medical school. Again, I was part of a first generation of college students like Mike was. 
And so I took my first chemistry 101 class with my pre-med advisor. And he said, hey, here's what you got to do. You got to take chemistry. It's the, the weeding class at my university. And so I studied for the first test and I got a 51. I knew that I had to get an A in the class to stay pre-med and to have this long projection goal. And so I went to uh, Wendy Fleeman is the professor's name. And I went to her office and I said, hey, so here's the deal. And I kind of told her my story. And, of course, I'm one of 160 people in this class because it's a lot of people take M101. And she could have just blown me off and been like, well, you got a 51. You're going you're gonna to fail. And she looked at me and she goes, I can tell that you're worried about this. And I was like, yeah, I am because I just got married. And I knew if I went home and told my wife that I got an F on a test and didn't have a path to an A. Like, I couldn't spend the night in my house when I went home that night. So <laughs> I had a lot of motivators. And uh, she sat down. And she said, well, it's not going to be easy. But if you come back next week, I'll come up with a 12-point plan to where you can get an A. And she said, so I set an appointment. And she says, I'm pretty sure you're not going to show up and just drop my class. But if you show up, I'll have a plan for you. And so the next Thursday, I showed up at her class. And these were not 12 easy steps. So I had to do extra lab hours every week. And she would come on her own time and make sure that I did the extra work. And she tutored me for two hours a week the rest of the semester on her own time outside of office hours. And this one person that I took one class from in college saw that I was motivated and saw that I had a goal and invested about 50 hours of her own personal time so I could get an A in her class and succeed and stay pre-med and go to med school. And it's one of those true little things where like she literally could have just blown me off and been what a lot of college professors are, which is, you got an F, sorry, I'm not going to change it. Um, but she was willing to take the time to invest in me to make sure that I succeeded in my goals. And it's one of the reasons why I actually try to stay mentoring and stay, stay, stay active, knowing that I was once in a position that a lot of people are. So. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. When did you become aware of her personal time and investment? Because I'm assuming in the moment you probably had no. no clue. But at what point in your own career did you look back and say, wow, that person really put in a ton of time of their own time and energy into me? Actually, it wasn't until I was done with the residency and I actually started having faculty office hours and that I would come in on different hours to meet with residents. And then I, and I was like, man, this is ridiculous. Nobody would ever do this for me. And then it was just like immediate, like somebody did. This is what Wendy Fleeman did for me every week for 16 weeks when I was a college freshman. Nice. All right. Well, so you defined the the time to pre-medicine because I think I've shared pretty widely the story of my getting into med school and things like that. So I like this challenge. So I'm going to go back to uh, someone who I've not previously given a public shout out to, but uh, I will be sure this gets to him. This is really interesting. We probably need to go out, Mike, sometime for a beer. We have a very anytime. similar story. Pretty much my anytime. backstory, and we all have this shared experience, uh, but just a little bit different because mine too involves education. I actually went to a very small school. I was a high achieving person in my high school and had a great time and loved it. And I had learned to do everything through social connection. And then I went to Virginia Tech, which is an amazing place, but it had lots of people that didn't look like me and didn't talk like me and had other ideas and other religions and other beliefs. And my first chemistry class, Andy, you said yours was 160. My first chemistry class, which was the first class I ever went to at Virginia Tech, Chemistry 101, was 525 people, which was 130 people larger than my high school all three grades combined. So I was a really, really, really tiny fish at a really big pond now. So a lot of people don't know, but I'm very open about it if you ask me. During my time at Virginia Tech, I learned a lot. But I actually dropped out of school 
my sophomore year. I woke up one day, was enamored with paramedicine, becoming a paramedic, and during that time had a lot of personal family stuff that was going on. First time being separated, first time being away. I was a first college student in my family, kind of very similar experience, I think, to what you had had, Mike. And I basically had a big nutty for all intents and purposes and just stopped going to, to, to class and focused all my energy uh, on becoming a paramedic. Now, the salient point of this is it's really hard to recover your grades from 21 credit hours worth of Fs. Technically 19 because I did do one test in genetics and I apparently did well enough to get a D minus in the course never having taken the second class or the final. But nonetheless, um, you know, that's a lot to pull back from. So picture me graduating Virginia Tech um, with that baggage hanging around my neck. And the rest of my college uh, undergraduate career, uh, it was always trying to pull that up, right? I was in the same spot you were, Andy, with the, you, you got a 51. The highest you can ever be is a C. And so I just accepted that story. I graduated. And when I did and started working as a paramedic and loved what I was doing, I kept going back to take classes because in Virginia, once you graduated from a public institution, you could then take classes without having the prerequisites. You could just enroll them. So I started taking things that made no sense at the time, things like uh, integral math and a human art class and think nothing that paired together. But the goal was I wanted to eventually raise my grade enough so that I could apply to go to a nursing school because I didn't think I would ever have grades enough to, to go do anything else. Interestingly, at an adjacent university, they had a class in uh, forensic psychology, an undergraduate psychology class that I just thought sounded interesting. And since I was paying for it now, writing my own checks, working, I decided I was only going to take things that was interesting. So I signed up for this class in forensic psychology. It was an undergraduate class, and I took the class, and I showed up, and I was enthralled by this material. And I would go and I would see the professor. His name was Mike Amott. Hi, Dr. Amott. I would, I would go see him. And I, I came in one day and I said, I got this brilliant idea I thought was brilliant. I, I said to myself, you know what? If I enroll in a new bachelor's program, then they won't, they'll only count my first two years, transfer credit over. I could get a chance to like redo my undergrad and get a bachelor's degree and, you know, have a good GPA. And so I went in and sat down with uh, with Dr. Amat, and I spent the whole semester going over really interesting things about serial killers and psychology. And he was just he was just the coolest. Like he studied the neatest things. I went in one day to sign up for another class that he was teaching, and he looked at me and he goes, "What are you doing?" And no one had ever actually asked me that. Like. The same thing, right? What What are you going to do if plan A doesn't work? He just looks at me and goes, what are you doing? I'm like, well, you know, ultimately, here's my plan. I had a horrible, you know, GPA at Virginia Tech, and it's never going to get better. And I thought if I do this, and I can get it. And he goes, do you want to get another bachelor's degree? Or would you like to, like, move on with your life? You just need to let the past go. And I was like, well, how you can't do that. He's like, sure you can. Let me show you. You want to be a graduate student? I was like, well, yeah, I would love to be a graduate student. But, you know, I mean... It, I don't even have the minimum grade to apply. And he literally says, come with me. And he walks me down to the dean's office and he walks in and he tells the dean that this is the kind of person we want at our university. You need to get this student hooked up. Let's do what we need to do. And the next thing you know, I'm signed up to do this testing and I'm provisionally accepted at the university to start taking graduate classes. And all of that was through his effort 
which I knew none of what all was amazingly going on behind the scenes of how he was advocating and taking the time to make sure that I was doing the right things. And it was because of him that I actually got the graduate degree, which I'm very proud of. But he also, at that time, without realizing it, helped me kind of unnoose myself from my own inhibitions about I wasn't smart enough to do something or I couldn't apply, which is ultimately what allowed me to apply to medical school. But more importantly, now when I have those people that come in, uh, those residents or those students that didn't get the passing grade or the high honors or the whatever, or they come up to me and they go, Dr. Casey, I'm really interested in your program, but your application is, requires a 500 and I only have a 408 and I can go authentically breathe boo-boo it's going to be okay and here's why and i think what's so fascinating is i'm sure he has no idea he changed the trajectory of your life yeah absolutely yep yeah you know i'm listening to all four of these stories right and i hear four really important lessons that i think both faculty members can reflect on and students should reflect on if they experience any of them right so we have one of contingency planning we have another one of early wins We have another one of time investment, and we have another one of sponsorship, right? So those are four really important aspects of being an effective faculty member who really, if you're in it for the long haul and you're going to change people's trajectories of their lives and and you're really going to have the impact where somebody might be sitting around in a podcast studio 20 years from now and talking about you, those are activities that deeply matter to people. They have high value. Similarly, the students who are experiencing them, sometimes like, like Andy, just didn't recognize it at the time. Um, but but these are special people because most people won't do those four things for you. And when you encounter that, you know, give all that you can give in response so that you can get the most that you can get out of that relationship because those are those are few and far between truly Absolutely. in your career. Absolutely. And it's so weird. You never know whose life you're gonna change. Yeah. Ever. Or who's been changing yours all yeah. along behind the scenes. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I think this was awesome. Yeah. This was not scripted for people Very listening. Cool. This was exactly. I'm inspired. Organic. Yeah. I'm inspired too. That's yeah. great. I uh, love your story, by yeah. the way. I know. Thank right? you. So I was at a, a small Catholic grade school in upstate New York. It was an old mill town. And there was a ton of Polish immigrants. And they were still coming over in the 70s um, to work in these mills, which are now closed. But my grade school in kindergarten, you know, I was taught partly in Polish. I couldn't speak Polish. But then in first grade, you know, the, the kids who couldn't speak English went with the nuns who could speak Polish and they learned math and learned to read because that's really all they could teach them. And then the rest of us moved on. And there was clearly divergence of, of life after that. Those kids that didn't get in to the let's move on and just learn stuff like they're they're their lives were just different. Yeah. So the yeah. fact that you had someone who pulled you along with everyone is so important. You know, I look back on that and I, I don't know that I can pick someone who did that for one of my classmates in the same way yeah. That, yeah. That, that it happened for you. So special. Yeah, so special. Yeah. We've talked about this before too on EM Over Easy. The, the favorite imagery that I have of a great mentor, right, is one arm reaching up and one arm reaching down. Yes. You know, the one arm reaching up because mm-hmm. you as a mentor always want to be better but one arm reaching down to pull someone up to where you are. So, so important. I I used to love Jim Adams at Northwestern, the chair would meet with all of the applicants on interview day and say the same thing. Like in, in many places you've experienced people only hitting you on the head and and putting you down and you have to overcome in order to prove yourself. And we want to be a place that pulls you up. And I always really enjoy that. Yeah. 
and the next step to well. push up, right? Right. right. You know, it's a, like yeah, it's a pull up. And not only yeah. not only for someone to be helping pull you up, but also you pushing up someone else, right? right. And so you have two hands, one yes. to reach out for someone to pull you up and then you should be pushing someone else up. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us for Emo Over Easy, Mike. This is an awesome and Yeah, pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, not, actually, will not be the last episode he just chose not to use any of that footage. <laughs> just throwing that out there world. Hopefully this one gets actually Hi. played. Well, Tarlin was here, so I'll Tarlin, get it. Tarlin's it'll, it'll, been, it'll, on, it'll you know, been on the show <laughs> Thank many you for times. Having She's me. center square. Yeah. Until next time, guys, don't forget to follow us on social media. We have Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time. Thanks, Thank man. you.